Ephesians 6, beginning with verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This passage has been so helpful for me, even in recent days, but especially over the last 10 or so years. I'm really a new parent. I've been a father for a little over a decade. I'm a novice at best. My role really this morning, though, as you know, is not to tell you, so my experience has been perfect, so follow my example. My role this morning is to tell you this is what the Bible says Join me, as I believe you are, in your efforts to be faithful to Christ in your parenting and in your willingness to help others with their parenting, and follow my example that's filled with successes but smattered with failures, for sure. I confess that to you from the beginning. You already know that. Uh, But it's important that we are on the same page with regard to what God has called us to. And even as Becca related in her testimony this morning from her time in Ukraine, it is our responsibility and privilege to call people to the one who has fulfilled the law without expecting them to fulfill the law, but to trust in him who has. That's a tall order because our natural tendency is to communicate to people our successes and then to expect them to do things almost precisely the way we've done them. Far better. Think of it. Think of the much greater impact you can and will have on others when you draw attention to your failures and say, but in my failures, I am ready and willing to acknowledge that the one who is my master, who is my king, who is my savior, there is no failure. My failures are not his fault, but my successes are to his credit because of his grace. So I trust that as we go through this text together, we as a church will grow in our ability to reach the lost. You know this, your parenting is not just about your parenting. Your parenting is about leading little ones to Christ, that they would lead others to Christ. Think much bigger about your role in your home if you are a parent or about to be a parent. What you should be doing is teaching your children to be humble servants whose lives are reflective of the humble servant. By way of introduction, I want to call your attention to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The call for our lives to be devoted primarily to one reality, and that is to love the Lord our God. Everything you do, everything I do, should be run through the grid of loving the Lord our God. And so this is the ultimate command of the Bible. It's to love the Lord your God. And then, as you know, Moses gets very specific here to the elect of Israel by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. This is a call to meditate on and memorize the Word of God. To put the Word of God into your heart and keep it with you wherever you go. And then again, Moses gets very, very specific. You shall teach them diligently. 
hardworkingly, with sacrifice, with sweat, with diligence, persistence, perseverance. You shall teach them diligently. It's a deliberate strategic act. It's a willingness to sit down and look your children in the eye and tell them what they must believe. Teach them truth. We'll look more closely at that later, but it's clear here what's being stated. You shall teach them diligently. Teach what diligently? The words of God's commands. If there's anything, if there's one primary issue which parents are responsible for, it's helping children understand what God commands in light of where those commands are and where they alone are in the Bible, not in your dream, not in some conversation you had, not in some epiphanal experience you had, but in the Word of God and only in the Word of God. And when you cross that line into thinking that God's giving you special and additional information, you have utterly watered down and dismissed the singular value of the Word of God as just that. You've denied what it has said about itself. In the moment that you believe God is giving you special revelation, you are essentially saying, I don't need what God has provided. And by the way, it's not enough. I need a... I need an experience for more information from God. And I strongly suggest that those in circles who are promoting this concept of getting additional information from God are not adhering to what they have. Not faithfully by any means. Again, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. What is the context? It's the natural dealings and details of life in all you do, as you sit, as you talk, as you walk. It should be the natural inclination of your heart to talk about things that are in the Word of God, in the car, on the way to church, on the way to dinner, on the way to baseball practice, whatever it is, the casual meanderings and dealings of life filled with instruction. It's not to say there shouldn't be a concentrated, strategic, regular time of instruction by way of something that you might call family devotions. That's great. But this is what's commanded. This is what you and I are called to. When you lie down and when you rise up, what is that? It's all day long. Every opportunity. And then this, and he gets again even more specific about the manner by which we are to do this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your foreheads. This figure of speech. And yet, as you know, there are those today who you will see with little phylactery boxes fastened to their heads with itty bitty teeny tiny pieces of paper with Hebrew Scripture written on them and tucked in those little boxes. What do we call that? Legalism. They've intended to obey the letter of the law and completely abandoned the spirit of the law. What possible good could that be to have something written sitting next to your head in a little box? Others might look at you and say, whoa, he's mature. And that's exactly the purpose for which they do that. The idea is that it's near your mind. What's the nearest place to your mind? Your mind. The point is, put it in your mind. 
Keep it in your hand. Keep it in your heart. Read the Bible. Very simply stated. Keep it abreast. Always on your tongue. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Meaning, keep them before the presence of those for whom you are responsible in your home. Keep them before the eyes of the little ones. And many, many Christians even today will literally post this very passage on their doorpost. That's not a bad thing to do. It's a reminder to them. Many of you know that if you've been in my office, as you walk out, you see above the door the words, shepherd the flock of God among you. I see that every day. It's always on my mind. It would be on my mind anyway, but when I see it, it helps. Nothing wrong with posting Scripture throughout your house. Use post-its if you want. But the idea is that you're keeping the Word of God. You're keeping the commands of God before your mind and before the minds of those for whom you are responsible. Now, as you know, in our text today, we're dealing specifically with discipline and instruction. This partnership of responsibilities in the Christian faith to which you and I are called. And they come on the heels of a prohibition. A command to not do something, to not exasperate your children. And so this, in a sense, is much of the solution for avoiding exasperating your children. And as I mentioned last week, dads, fathers, if you think you're not exasperating your children, chances are you are. If you're not willing to be sensitive to the possibility that they are just not yet willing, courageous enough to tell you in so many words about your exasperation, chances are that... It's happening right under your nose. Think of it. Paul's given us these words. Paul has given us these specific words so that we will not fail. And if we have failed, we'll know how to experience correction and rejoicing in light of what God will do for those who will repent. I think it's timely to turn to Susanna Wesley. Born 19 children. Two of them were substantially successful in terms of communicating truth. We lean heavily to this day on Charles Wesley and even John Wesley in their exhibition of a devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank the Lord for their faithfulness. It was not perfect faithfulness, and maybe sometime we'll look at that a little more closely. But certainly they loved the Lord. Susanna Wesley spent, many of you know, an hour a day in prayer with her apron over her head, praying for the 17 little ones that lived of the 19 that she had. And the children knew that they were not to interrupt her efforts to go before the Lord during that hour. She said this, though, and I think it's helpful for us this morning. The parent who studies to subdue self-will in his child works together with God in the renewing and saving of a soul. Now listen closely. This is older English, okay? But listen closely. I think this will help. The parent who indulges it does the devil's work. Indulges what? The self-will. Really what she's saying is the person who allows it. The person who lets it incubate. She uses the word indulge meaning in the same way that you might indulge in some wonderful piece of dessert. You just kind of 
saying, well, it is what it is and I'm going to enjoy it for what it is without really addressing what needs to be addressed. She says, that person does the devil's work. She goes on then to say, and makes religion impracticable. Meaning the things of the Lord. You build a wall in the mind of the child whose self-will you indulge. You make salvation unattainable and condemn your child, body, and soul forever. Strong words, but true words. Necessary words. Please don't check out. Please don't be offended. Please don't think I'm crossing a line into your family that I have no business being in. I do, and you have every business being in mine. Susanna Wesley can help us. J.C. Ryle, I think all the more, can help us with these words. Parents, determined to make your children obey you. Yes, that's what he said. Parents, determined to make your children obey you. I would add right here, if not you, then who? He didn't say that, but I think it's appropriate. He goes on to say, though it may cost you much trouble and cost them many tears. Obedience is the only reality of faith that is visible, faith acting and faith incarnate. It is the test of real discipleship among the Lord's people. Teach them to obey while young, or else they will be fretting against God all their lives long. End quote. Wise words. Now you may say, my children are difficult. Especially difficult. Maybe you have legitimately extenuating circumstances. You know, there are some children who will always be children, mentally. I believe the scripture is referring to them when it uses the phrase little ones. It's important for you as parents, if you're in that predicament, it's important for us as a local church to be sensitive to those who are in that predicament. That This is an absolute age-old reality. Two things. Two things. Do not abandon your responsibility to teach that child to obey Jesus Christ and be sensitive to his or her limitations. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Stick to the reality that if you've been given an extenuating circumstance, God in his sovereignty and in his grace has provided everything necessary for you to manage that situation with grace and love and spiritual success. I think I've mentioned to you that one of the highlights of my Christian ministry at a church a couple of churches ago was with a young lady who had Down syndrome. And uh, her parents, faithful in the church, and uh, in due time they were convinced that she had come to know the Lord. She certainly had a conviction about the gospel and about truth. She displayed that in her life imperfectly, just as you and I do. And she came to me and said, I want you to baptize me. And so we worked through the gospel, and she affirmed all of it, and she displayed it regularly so that the church could affirm that, and I had the privilege to baptize her. And, you know, some would say, you know, I don't know that she can really articulate the gospel the way we would like her to, and I would utterly disagree, because she did, and I saw it. And yet she uh, was certainly faithful to the truth and her life was uh, deliberately devoted to Jesus Christ. She loved him and so it was my privilege to, to baptize her. 
And again, as a church, we want to be appropriately sensitive to those scenarios, knowing that God calls us all to the same obedience, and yet for some, it might be, might look different than what it is for the rest of us. Well, last time we walked you through Ephesians 5 in an effort to help you understand this command in Ephesians 6, and we talked about the significant responsibility of a man to first nurture his wife. The best father will be the best husband first. The faithful father will be first the faithful husband. He will nurture his relationship with his wife. He will exhibit the headship that Christ exhibited, not by demanding, hey, don't do anything without checking with me first. But instead, he will show that he, just as Christ died for the church, would be willing to die for her, and she will know whether or not that's true. She will see it in his conduct. She will see it in his faithfulness. She will see it in his repentance over his unfaithfulness. She will see it in his devotion to the church. She will see it also in his devotion to the kids, but she will see it primarily in his devotion to her, to talk to her, to have actual conversations using words with her to start with, to be involved in the details of her heart and her life, to be concerned about her spiritual growth, even to wash her, as the text of Scripture says, with the water of the word. That's what a Christian man does. That's certainly what a Christian man who will be faithful in parenting will do with his wife. And we get those things from Ephesians 5. The text, though, as you know, says, do not provoke your children to anger. Do not exasperate or cause them to resent. And we told you last time that Paul doesn't qualify this by saying, do not cause them to be exasperated specifically against you. He leaves it open-ended, which would mean that we need as men, as fathers, to not exasperate our children against others, to provoke them to anger, not only against us, but against others. And so I ask you, men, are you nurturing a high regard for those who walk with the Lord in particular in your children, or do you slander them? Think about this, be honest about it. If you do that, confess it and be done with it, because you're killing the future spirituality of your kids if you're doing that. This was befuddling to me as a youth pastor. You know, the very guy in the church who was pouring himself into the youth was, was the punching bag of those children's parents. It's very, very common for parents to slander the youth pastor who has given his life to their children. How much more so significant men for you not only to slander your boss or or others in the neighborhood or whatever but to slander those who are pouring into your life and your children's lives that will certainly lead to if it hasn't already the exasperation of your children as i mentioned last time your children are born into exasperation they're born into anger they're born into utter sinfulness david says i was conceived in sin we call this total depravity. If you don't believe in total depravity, you're rejecting everything the Bible says about the condition into which your children and you and I were born. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is sick. It's wicked. Who can understand it? There is no light of life in the infant spiritually. 
He needs to be instructed. He needs to be disciplined. He needs to be corrected. He needs to be taught the gospel. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Proverbs 22.15 I gave you a list of things that we called how to exasperate your children. How to exasperate your children. We won't walk through those in detail, but I want to mention them again. If you want to exasperate your children, here are 20 things. We went through them last week. Number one, become angry. Two, be hateful. Three, be disgusted. Four, be sarcastic. Five, berate them. That will certainly lead to exasperation. Six, manipulate them with indirect innuendo. Don't say what you are saying, but say it in such a way that they'll get it by default. In other words, be dishonest and manipulate them. That will really lead to anger in your kids. Seven, excuse their sin. Eight, ignore their sin. Nine, become desensitized to their sin. Ten, pass them off to someone else who you think will do better at encouraging them while they're sinning. Eleven, flood them with toys. Twelve, refuse wise counsel. Believe that you and you alone have the end-all, be-all information on parenting, despite the fact that those who have been successful have also failed and have humbled themselves and subjected themselves to others' counsel. Thirteen, receive worldly counsel. This has so permeated the church that so many people don't even realize they're doing it. Is the Bible enough or not? Receive worldly counsel, and certainly you will exasperate and lead your children to anger because you're teaching them truth while teaching them falsehood. And the church has lost discernment with regard to this. Fourteen, withhold discipline. The Bible says you hate your kids if you withhold discipline. Fifteen, apply prolonged punishment. Let it go on and on and on and on and on until you feel like they've earned their way back. Discipline involves a strong expression of correction that is felt And then there needs to be instruction that follows immediately. The person who, you know, grounds his kid for six months for bad conduct has taken away every opportunity for instruction. Deal with it. Deal with it quickly. Deal with it strongly. Deal with it lovingly. And move on. 16. Medicate them. Do away with all responsibility and say, you know what? This really changed his behavior, and so it works. Would we disagree? No, we would say, yes, it works. Yes, it certainly leads to changed behavior. But is it honoring Christ? I strongly suggest that it prevents the child's ability and willingness to be sensitive to the substantial reality of their sin, the terribleness of their sin. It also eliminates the ability to be sensitive to the Spirit of God who will save them Christ himself who will save them from that sin. 17, be a pragmatist. And just ask the question, what works? Remember we talked about this last time? The Bible's clear. You are to discipline your children. Though you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Yeah, but that doesn't really work on my kids. Really? You're able to decide that what God said is not accurate and not helpful and not true. You're the exception. Think of it that way. You say, but you don't understand. My experience says, and that's the problem. 
The moment you elevate your experience above the precise teaching of the Word of God, you have abandoned the Word of God and you've lost all hope of any ability to lead your children to Christ. You've said God is right where I think he's right. And this is often how it goes when uh, those who are sitting under Bible teaching, sound Bible teaching for the first time respond. They're listening for whether or not what the teacher says is going to agree with what they already believe rather than asking the question, is what I'm being told so? So you and I have the responsibility to abandon pragmatism, to stop saying what works and say what honors God, what has he commanded of us. And when we understand what he has commanded of us, we will understand that ultimately, long term, it will work. So maybe you want to become a divine pragmatist rather than a short-term pragmatist who thinks that you and others can figure out what's better than what God's word has said. Number 18, teach them to have good manners without a changed heart. You see this all the time. It's very common in the church. The raising of Pharisees, those who are willing to look others in the eye and be nice and say thank you and yes, sir, and all those things, and yet deep down they have a, a fundamental hatred for the deeper truths of Scripture. It's very common in the church. Number 19, treat their mother poorly. Treat their mother poorly. Had more than a few men last week say thank you for point 19. Treat their mother poorly. You've lost all respect from your children, even though they're not courageous enough to tell you in the moment. Number 20, A and B, leave discipline to your wife. That's 20A, 20B. Exclude your wife from the discipline. In fact, don't let her be involved in it at all. Just say, you know, this is my job as, as the father. Well, this morning, we're going to focus then on the latter half of the passage, Ephesians 6, 4b, if you will. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And as we get started here, let me suggest that more discipline early on and more instruction later on is how this kind of works. I think you know this. That's a natural reality. I think that's why they go in the order that they do in this passage. Discipline speaks more clearly and more effectively early on. Instruction speaks more clearly and more effectively later on. But discipline is necessary at a young age. You need to start now. You're a parent. You need to start now disciplining your children. But bring them up. This term means raise, rear, educate, provide food. Nurture. Back to Ephesians 6 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. How will they know to do that if their parents are not dedicated and faithful, fathers in particular, to avoid exasperating children, if they're not willing to discipline and instruct them? Many of you know I grew up without discipline and with very, very little instruction. So I thank God that. In his grace and in his kindness, he brought godly men into my life, brought difficult circumstances into my life later, led me to realize that this is who I need to be as a parent. So if you're in that category of saying, you know what, I didn't learn any of this from my parents, learn it from the Lord, learn it from your church, learn it from the word of God, and trust that he will enable and strengthen you to be faithful in such a way that you can make your children ready to be better parents than you. That's what I long for. 
I hope that in those moments where I've confessed my failures to my kids, that they're keeping a list. And they're saying, yeah, I don't ever want to do what dad did. I hope that's happening. I tell them that. Where I failed you in this way, I hope that you will see the dangers of it, the devastation of it, the hurt of it, and that you will protect your own kids from such conduct. They then would teach their children to be better parents even than they. The uh, command to honor your father and mother comes along with a promise. Long life. This has to do with eternal life. The one who is committed and devoted to honoring his mother and his father in a biblical manner can be certain that he will have eternal life. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. That's really just a precursor for what God has in store for all eternity. This idea of discipline, though, it comes from a word that really means children. Paideia, it does mean discipline. He disciplines those whom he loves. But it also has to do with the idea of training and correction. In other words, not discipline just for the sake of changed behavior. This is where the world gets us wrong, if you will, and it's our fault. This is where the world sees us as being abusive. You know, you've seen plenty of things where people are saying, you know, all physical contact with children by way of attempting to correct or discipline them is wrong, it's evil. And they'll equate biblical discipline with abuse. I don't have to explain to you the difference between biblical discipline and abuse. Biblical discipline is an act of love, as we see in Hebrews 12 with the Lord for us. It's an act of love, but it brings a strong consequence so as to help us avoid an eternal consequence. It needs to bring about something that leads to the attention of the child's heart. And if it doesn't, it's nothing more than lip service. Proverbs 22.6, as you know, says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But why abdicate? Why jump to the idea that there are exceptions to this rule? Why do that? Oh, I've done everything correct in my parenting, and still, you know, he doesn't walk with the Lord. Why do that? Why not say, you know what, I was not a perfect parent? Or in defense of your own parents or other parents, why not simply say they weren't perfect? How can I learn from their imperfections? How can I learn from the Word of God primarily rather than some sort of exception clause with regard to something that didn't turn out so well? Why not put one's hope and trust and faith in this statement? Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Instead of preparing the way by saying, well, I'm doing everything I can. We'll see how it goes. God is sovereign. Why do that? Why not say, because God is sovereign, I will pray fervently. I will fast. I will sacrifice. I will do everything within my spirit-filled power, the energies given me by God to be faithful to biblical parenting rather than saying, well, sometimes it just doesn't work out. It's irresponsible. It's unloving. And you know people for whom this has been a tremendous reward. Even as their children are older and they display disobedience to Christ and they regroup and they hit the reset button and they humble themselves and they go to their kids and they go to their leadership and they say, help me because I don't want my child 
to suffer the eternal consequences of his sin. I want those consequences to be on the Savior. That Christ became sin on our behalf. He took that sin on. And in so doing, spared all those who will trust in him from those eternal consequences. So whatever the condition of your children, don't, please don't abdicate to this irresponsible idea that I did everything right and it's their fault. Ask yourself the question, how can I be faithfully and humbly and sacrificially involved today? And their call back to the gospel. Proverbs 29.17 says, Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give you delight to your heart. Proverbs 5.22 The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. You see that? What a great text, Proverbs 5.22, to give us a picture of what sin does. It entangles us. We, we get entangled in the cords of sin. And, and, and what happens when we are so entangled in sin, especially for the unbeliever, he can't do anything except point his finger at other people. And the one who is entangled in sin, the text says, will die. Why? For lack of discipline. Parents, you and I have the privilege to prevent that. To provide discipline out of love. That they would be spared eternal torment. Again, verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. You see that? He's not discerning. He's foolish. He's not wise. He doesn't mind weak, watered-down, false teaching. And he subjects himself to it because it makes him feel good. It builds his self-esteem. What he needs is discipline. And because of a lack of discipline, he will be led astray in his folly. But here's the heart attitude. Here's the mindset from Hebrews 12. I alluded to it earlier. Verse 3. Listen carefully as I read this entire text from Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 11. Very important, fundamental passage for you and I as Christians to understand our relationship with the Father and how He sovereignly works His discipline into our lives for His glory and for our better good. Listen to this, Hebrews 12, 3. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And why must we do that? Why must we subject ourselves to this? So that we won't become weary and faint-hearted. And I suggest that the parent who is discouraged and then he hears truth, it's offensive. It's heart-wrenching. And many times, what does he do? He checks out. He starts rolling his eyes. and His eyes get glassed over. And Praise God, the text goes on to say this. In your struggle against sin, your struggle, he's not talking about your children, in your struggle, my struggle, against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Well, that's a good reminder because one has, right? Isn't that great? It's encouraging. You haven't resisted to that point. You haven't said no to your sin to the point that you're actually bleeding. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? In other words, have you forgotten that God is your father and he's given you instruction? That's what the question means. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Now, friends, remember, he's speaking here. This pastor is speaking to adult Christians. He's not talking to adults about their children, and he's certainly not talking to children. He's talking to adult Christians. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The idea is that the man who doesn't discipline his children treats them as if they're not his kids. It's an illegitimate relationship. Verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. This is the point. Do you share in the holiness of God? Is it important to you? Or are you satisfied with some appearance of holiness as a churchgoer who does some things in the church? Is it your passion to display the holiness of God, to literally be set apart? Our culture is producing an environment where this will be known about you, whether or not it's true. What's happening in our culture is going to lead to a division between the church and the false church. It's happening before our very eyes. Those who remain firmly devoted to sound theology will be proven to be devoted to holiness. That we are set apart from eternity past, Ephesians 1 and 2, for holiness. The one who wants to abandon that reality will ultimately be revealed to want nothing to do with holiness. And how is that manifest primarily between now and then? He hates God's discipline does not want God to chastise him. He does everything he can to avoid it while maintaining a devotion to his sin. Verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, that's what the goal of discipline should be. As you're disciplining your child, you should be thinking, I'm leading him or her to the place where there is an awareness of what holiness is so that they would be trained in the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And in the moment when the heart is soft because there's been a strong measure of discipline with the child, that's what should be explained. That's the time to explain it. That's the time to say, I I know this is painful for you. It's painful for me. I don't want to do this. I wish I didn't have to do this, but I know that it's God's design that I would exercise discipline with you. Now let's talk about why. You can do that with confidence. You can do that with a smile. You can do that with love in your heart and on your face. And your children will grow in their understanding of their need for holiness. If that's not the point, if that's not the purpose, and if it's not done with grace, you will exasperate your children. So will I. Proverbs 19, 18. Discipline your son, for there is hope. 
Do not set your heart on putting him to death. What? Yeah, exactly. If you're not disciplining your son while there is hope, your heart is set on putting him to death. That could mean a number of things, but the idea is that you're more concerned about peace in the home for now than you are about eternal peace. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. And we had a good discussion about this in my family group last time. What do you say to a woman, a single parent who's struggling, doing everything that she knows to do to be faithful to Christ, faithful to her children? And she says, you know, my position has been because I love my children, I'm not going to discipline them with a rod. She's committed to that. She believes that. What do you say to that woman? Well, the Bible says. No, you've already said that. That's why you're having the conversation. Don't rub it in. I think that's the point at which to say, well, let's, let's look closely at what God means by hate. Let's look closely at the context of the passage and the overall command in the Scripture to discipline your son while there is hope. Don't set your heart on putting him to death. Let's talk about what it means to withhold the rod and what a rod is. Let's work through those things together. But the point is this. You're practicing practical hatred if you are withholding discipline from your child. I'm not saying you don't love your kids. I know you love your kids. The Bible teaches us in Romans 12 that there is a natural storge love that every parent has for his children. It's not agape love. It's storge love. It means that you, in some sense, naturally, and it could be selfishly, are willing to do anything under the sun for those people because they're your offspring. It comes naturally. But in a willingness to develop agape love for them, to help them understand the love of Christ, a willingness to die for them because he died for our sins and died for us, helping them understand the gospel. That should be the heart of our attitude in this. Realizing that the one who does not discipline his child really has no opportunity to explain that truth to him. That passage goes on to say, he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Diligently. This is the idea that there is some faithful consistency. Well, we do it sometimes, you know. Diligently, with diligence, with a plan, with agreement amongst the mother and the father if they are both involved. Diligence. A willingness to set aside one's personal desires of particular issues, at least for the moment, to say, I have to deal with this. I have to deal with this in love and grace, but with firm discipline. And I'll do it diligently. Proverbs 19.29, judgments are prepared for scoffers and blows for the back of fools. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. There needs to be a blow. Proverbs 10.13, on the lips of the discerning, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Proverbs 14.3, in the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back. What does that mean? It means that that which comes out of the fool's mouth should certainly and quickly result in some consequence for what he says. He's bringing it upon himself. That's the idea. But the lips of the wise will protect them. You see, the wise 
person is willing then to instruct. There's not only discipline, there's instruction. Proverbs 23, 13, do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. This is the best passage I know of to help you and me understand the difference between biblical discipline and abuse. We all know stories, and maybe you have been subject to a situation like that. Maybe you have observed it. There is a type of physical contact that will lead to harm and will ultimately lead to death. But the point here is that when the rod is used properly, it will not bring about death. Don't be concerned that it will if you do it appropriately. If you need instruction and counsel on that, plenty of people in our church who can help with that. Proverbs 29.15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Now and later. The child who gets his way, who demands his way, and they start this from infancy. The child for whom that is nurtured, ultimately will have disdain for his mother and he will bring shame on her. So discipline is the one side of the coin. Instruction is the other. What is instruction? You know what it is. It's teaching, admonition. The Greek term here comes from the Greek term nutheteo, which we've spent much time talking about, to insert into. And in the context, it means to insert into the mind. To sit down with someone, look them in the eye and tell them what they need to know and believe and hear and obey and respond to. That's admonition. It's instruction. It's explaining things. But not just instruction, right? This command is carefully qualified with this phrase, of the Lord. Now let's not consider for the moment the bad instruction that the world provides. Let's consider for the moment the bad instruction from those who are in the church who are not taught well, and when they are, they reject it. Proverbs 12.1 Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 12.1 I'm going to give you a list of things to teach them. Number one, teach them to love discipline. Teach your children to love discipline. I'm not saying teach them to enjoy the severity of it. That's silly. It's dishonest. And they'll know it. But teach them to enjoy the reality that you, in your love for your children, are bringing about a severe consequence so as to protect them from an eternally severe consequence. Some small expression of the eternal consequence of sin brought about out of love. So number one, teach them to love discipline. As they grow, help them to understand that discipline, while painful, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the idea. Not changed behavior. A love for that which is truly righteous. Men, what kind of example have you established for your children? Be honest. Do you... Men, do you love discipline? Do you love it? Why on earth would you or I think that we might persuade our children to love discipline so that they would be wise rather than stupid? Why in the world would we think that we could accomplish that with them when we ourselves scoff 
and gossip and slander when discipline is brought against us. From a police officer. I know this is hitting home. You got angry at the cop because he pulled you over. And no, you weren't speeding. You never do. You know what you just taught your kids? When you're honest enough to realize that this is here for you, ask someone who you know will be honest with you, who will reprove you. Men, do you love to be corrected? Are you grateful when someone brings something to your attention where you could have and should have done better? Or do you quickly become defensive? Your children are watching, and they very likely are emulating your practice. Teach your children to love discipline by loving discipline. Number two, be humble. Be humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Know the character of God. And if you are yet rejecting the truth of the character of God, your kids are watching and you're influencing them with that. If you're unwilling to do honest, deep study through discipleship and spend time with other men, thinking through the difficult, hard truths of Scripture, but think you've got to wire it all on your own. Your kids are watching. And they very likely will do exactly the same thing you're doing. Be humble. Tremble before the Word of God, Isaiah 66.2. Do you tremble before the Word of God, men? Really? Does your life prove that you tremble Are you serious about the Word of God? I mean, really serious about it. Your kids know. If you'll be humble, you'll have some opportunity to produce in them humility. Communicate clearly. Teach them to have good grammar. It means something. Teach them to... I don't mean perfect grammar. But teach them to speak clearly. My grandfather was a school principal. He said, what really matters is that people understand what you're talking about. That was helpful. But don't think that sloppy, mumble speech is going to be helpful to anybody. And teach your children to be humble. When they walk in the room, do they acknowledge people? Or do they act like they're not there? Teach your children to be respectful. That can't happen with any kind of spiritual significance unless... They're humble. Teach them to have a hard attitude that other people are more important than they are. Boy, that'll go against the culture. Yes, teach your children to believe that everyone else is more important than they are. Why? Because Christ commanded it in Philippians 2. To consider others as more important than yourself. Where does the Bible use the word esteem? Well, in the King James, it says to esteem others as more important than yourself. Philippians 2. Be humble. Speak clearly. Communicate in such a way that people actually know what you're talking about. Know what you're talking about and communicate in such a way that people know what you're talking about. Don't mumble. Don't mumble theologically and don't mumble with your diction. Say things that matter and say them clearly and repeatedly. Number three, love God. Love God. I read this to you from Deuteronomy 6. As I said, this is the ultimate command of Scripture. Jesus told us that it's the greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. With passion, with truth. 
to love him for who he says he is. Do you love what the Bible teaches about God or do you sweep it under the rug? It's very common in a man-centered theology. I don't like that part. It's idolatry. It's idolatry. Number four, love truth. Teach your children to love truth, not tradition. It's not unusual for children to emulate their father's Phariseeism. Are you only willing to believe the most basic of biblical truth, but when confronted with the deeper theological realities of Scripture that require diligence and humility in seeking the wisdom of the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans, and your own current spiritual leadership, do you abdicate responsibility to that? Say, well, I just love Jesus. All that stuff doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. If your children know Christ, they need to know that you have a love for deep theology. Why? Because that's what changes lives. That's what produces a hunger for holiness. A hunger for effective evangelism. Teach them the hard truths rather than scoffing at the hard truths. And I think in the context of Ephesians 6, if you go back to Ephesians 1, here's one of them in verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Men, do you love this truth of the doctrine of election that makes it necessary, that ascertains that certainly those whom God predestined unto eternal life will have a love for being set apart? Do you love this truth? That your children would love this truth. Why? So that they will love God. That God would receive the glory. This is not a secondary theological issue. It's crucial that God would receive the glory that He and He alone deserves. Number five, love the gospel. Love the gospel. Don't miss an opportunity to explain the gospel to your children. Do not let your correction, your discipline of your children be about their behavior. That's a secondary issue. It's a vehicle. Well, okay, because you did this, there are consequences. These are the consequences. Now let me tell you why it matters. And the gospel is why it matters. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is why it matters that Christ gave his life for sinners, that they would be redeemed, that they would love the resurrection, that they would hope in the resurrection, that they would long for the return of Christ, knowing that when he grants eternal life, when he grants repentance, that leads to a love for holiness, a hatred for personal sin. Your children know. They're watching. Do you love the gospel? and therefore teach your children to love the gospel. Teach them to explain the gospel. Do an exercise with them. Ask them, what is the gospel? Put it in writing. And when they get it wrong, gently correct them and say, let's go over it again. And do it the rest of their lives. Read good books to them on the gospel. Tell them what Romans 1.16 says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Memorize that with your children. Teach them to love the gospel, to know what it is. Number six, 
Love righteousness yourself. Teach them to love righteousness by loving righteousness yourself. Romans 1.17 says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Teach them to believe in the gospel that their lives would be devoted to righteousness. The righteousness of Christ as well as personal sanctification. You know that the Pharisees for whom Paul prayed and had a deep passion for their salvation abandoned the righteousness of God, believing that they had fabricated their own righteousness, Romans 10, 1 through 4. They rested in their own achievement, their own conduct. You know, don't be the parent who looks to your children's conduct. Be the parent who looks to your children's conviction over righteousness. Are you training your kids to love righteousness? Not Emily Post good manners. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. But do they love righteousness? Make it practical. Proverbs 23, 24, you know, says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who sires a wise son will be glad in him. You know, in the context of this passage, I was looking back over this again, and it says in verse 15, My son... If your heart is wise, my own heart also will be glad. And my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak what is right. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Listen, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. You know, I've never heard a man say, you know, I'm so glad I taught my son to enjoy a great beer. Never heard anybody say anything like that. I'm sure glad I taught my son to eat a lot and be overweight. I've never heard a man say something like that. On the other hand, I've heard plenty of men say, I wish I had never introduced him to these things. Teach your kids to love righteousness. The righteousness of Christ. Number seven, teach them to love the church. Christians love the church. Christians love Christians. They love being with Christians. They love the Word of God. They love to be in the context where the Word of God is taught so that they can glean from it together, so that they can worship together, so that they can rejoice together, so that they can encourage one another together, so that they can be involved in each other's lives in such a way that honors the Lord. Love the church and teach your kids to love the church. Number eight, love the lost, of course. Teach your children to love the lost by loving the lost, by serving the lost. By being equipped in the church first to minister to the lost, to think rightly from a biblical perspective, to be engaged in effective evangelism, to be an aroma of Christ unto God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. That your theology would be right. You're equipped in the church to minister to those whom you would hope to see come to Christ. You know, you might say, Todd, I... I hear all this, I'm grateful for it, but I'm an unequally yoked mother or father. An unequally yoked wife or husband trying to raise my kids in a way that honors the Lord. 
but I'm fighting an uphill battle because I have a husband or a wife who pretends to be a Christian or I have a husband or a wife who wants nothing to do with any of it. Or I don't have either of those. I'm just on my own. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying something new that hasn't been said before in the Scripture. He's not defying what the Lord has said, but he's just saying the Lord hasn't recorded this for us in the Scripture. But I'm saying it to you now, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. In other words, there's an evangelistic practice going on when you're not saying to your husband, you know, I've come to know Christ, so you need to leave because we don't get along. You don't know that you won't save your husband. That's how Paul says it. Really what you're doing is trusting the Lord to save your husband through your conduct. And then he says this, listen carefully, those of you who are discouraged in single parent contexts or unequally yoked contexts, listen to this. Otherwise, otherwise, if you don't do that, otherwise, in other words, if you send your husband or your wife away, you divorce them, otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What's the point? Even when you're fighting an uphill battle, the reality is God uses the ungodly conduct of an unbelieving spouse or an abandoning spouse as leverage to show that you are, in fact, devoted to Christ. And there is the strong likelihood that they will become holy as a result of your parenting. Is it too late? Is it too late? Maybe you're in that scenario where you think it's too late. Hebrews 3, verse 12 says to you and to me, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The context here is not parenting. It is salvation. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. While today is still today, repent. This, of course, is primarily a call to the unbeliever. But for the person in the church who would say, I don't know what happened. I think I did everything right, or I think I'm doing everything right, and it's not going well. Let me read it again. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Examine your own heart. Examine your own life. Verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, while it is said today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. The pastor writing the book of Hebrews, relaying God's words, God's heart toward those whose ancestors rejected him. Why? Because while today was still today, they hardened their hearts. And he's saying to them, while today is still today, do not harden your heart. Do not be the parent, whether in Christ or not, who says, I didn't do anything wrong. That's a hard heart. That's a hard heart. Well, how can you and I help each other in our parenting? How can we put these things into practice? I need your help. 
We need each other's help. How can we help one another? Number one, number one, if we are to discipline and instruct our children in the Lord, number one, be motivated by Jesus Christ. Be motivated by Jesus Christ and model humility and obedience through discipleship. Where do I get that? Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How are we to make disciples of all nations if we're not ourselves involved in discipleship? I want to make a strong statement. I hope you hear it from the heart of a shepherd. If you're not involved in discipleship, you're not involved in Christianity. This is the primary call to the Christian to make disciples. The primary verb in that passage is not go. It's make. While going, make disciples. Who are you emulating, man? Who and how many men are you willing to freely hear correction from? Do you long for it or do you run from it? Are you modeling discipleship? Church discipleship, not what some would call, you know, discipleship in the family, but in the church. Are you pleading with other men to tell you the truth about you? Model discipleship. Number two, think biblically about parenting. Think biblically about parenting. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Abandoning tradition because it's just tradition, especially at the point where sound teaching explodes that tradition. A willingness to think biblically about parenting. That's how we can help each other. All of you, not just those who have young children. Number three, pray. And pray systematically with a notebook or a Word document or something that keeps track of your prayer for others in their parenting and your prayer for yourself in your parenting. Number four, love your children enough to receive correction. Love your children enough to receive correction. Don't be the parent who looks back 15, 20, 25 years from now saying, man, I should have listened. I should have looked for discipleship. I should have trusted the Lord. He provided what was necessary for me instead of thinking that I had it all wired. Number five, be willing to speak the truth in love. That's how we can help each other. Be willing to be the person who corrects, who reproves. Be willing to be honest and speak the truth in love. Number six, look for patterns in other people's parenting, good and bad. Look for patterns that you could learn from, but you could encourage. When you see someone doing something consistently and faithfully, and you see that it's resulting in a God-honoring reality in the midst of our church and that person's family, encourage that. And when you see patterns of apparent faithlessness, be willing to be involved in that person's life rather than just saying, hey, I noticed this. Be willing to be involved in a relationship. That's why discipleship is so important. That's why our family groups are so important. To actually have relationships with people in the church. That you, with the wisdom God provides for you, can assist and help others. Look for patterns, good and bad. But I want to close with this. I took this from John MacArthur's commentary on Ephesians 6. He says that one father said, my family's all grown and the kids are all gone, but if I had to do it all over again, this is what I'd do. One day we'll all be able to write this letter, right? 
Number one, I would love my wife more in front of my children. Number two, I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. Number three, I would listen more even to the littlest child. Four, I would be more honest about my own weaknesses, never pretending perfection. Five, I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus on me. That's huge. Seven, uh, six, I would do more things together with my children. Seven, I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. Eight, I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words of thoughtfulness. Nine, finally, if I had it to do all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them to God. And last, I want to share some things with you that I, as a one-decade-old parent, would do differently. Number one, I would devote more time to Jesus Christ and His Word. I would spend more time alone with my Savior in His Word, believing and obeying His commands. Number two, I would nurture my wife more. I would be more tender, more humble, more caring, more thoughtful with my wife. Number three, I would restrain my lips more often. I would wait for my heart to catch up with my Bible. Number four, I would spend more time with each child, starting with the oldest because he is the one with whom I have least time. I'd spend more time with them individually and together. And then five, I would confess my sin to other men more than I do, more than I have. Father, thank you for the grace of our Savior. Thank you for your love for us as our Father, And we pray that for the men in our church, you would make us men who are willing to acknowledge our failures. And that in so doing, we would help our children to acknowledge their failures. That we would think deep theological thoughts that are clear to us in your word and not reject them that we would be humble under the mighty hand of God. That in so doing, you would protect us and protect our children and protect our church from exasperating, provoking our children to anger, but that we could faithfully and effectively discipline our children and instruct them in the things of the Lord. Not just discipline them and not just instruct them, but to provide for them discipline and instruction in the Lord. Amen.